Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to our Healthy Mom and the Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I'm Dr. Cornelia Graves, a maternal fetal medicine specialist in Middle Tennessee, as well as the state project leader for many of the maternal TIPQC projects. Today, I have a very special guest with us, Dr. Hafshan Hamid. Dr. Hafshan Hamid is a maternal fetal medicine specialist and cardiologist at the University of California, Irvine. She has worked on various initiatives in the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine and has co-edited Cardio Obstetrics, a, Pre- a Practical Guide. Her interest is improving maternal outcomes by recognizing early medical and cardiovascular conditions. She also works with the Heart Outcomes and Pregnancy Expectation, that's the HOPE Registry, and with various research and clinical NIH-funded trials. We're really thankful that she is uh, here with us today. And I've known Dr. Hamid, we have met uh, through a mutual friend, actually, who was my nurse practitioner when I was at Vanderbilt University. And we have been working together uh, on cardiovascular screening tool. So I've known Dr. Hamid now for about, personally, for about six years. You know, it's a kind of unusual path that you've taken. So tell us a little bit about your background and what made you go into maternal fetal medicine and cardiology. Most people say one fellowship is enough. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Connie. I appreciate you having me here today. Um, You know, I would um, start off by saying that actually it was not planned. Um, I was a cardiology fellow at USC and the delivery volume at the county at that time was very high. And there was a large proportion of uh, recent immigrants from Mexico, a variety of undiagnosed and untreated cardiac conditions. And we had a dedicated half-day clinic to these cardiac patients every week, which was uh, primarily led by Dr. Uri Al-Kayam. Usually he would take a fellow with him to see those patients. And I was the cardiology fellow who actually got very interested. I really liked that clinic, and especially when I noticed a reluctance by the cardiology fellows to go to that clinic, to the women's hospital. A lot of times they would swap that clinic with me. So I was the one going there most often. And then I started volunteering. That helped me build a deep interest in taking care of this subgroup of cardiology patients. Um, And those are the patients who were not necessarily getting the care by the cardiologist in general, uh, gauging the interest at that time. So I ended up being the go-to fellow uh, at that point, um, both for inpatient consultations. We used to put a lot of uh, pulmonary artery catheterizations 
uh, Swan Dance Catheter, so I would be going in to do that uh, at Women's Hospital. I was then sure that I want to take care of uh, patients with cardiac disease or pregnant patients with cardiac disease. And I was towards the middle of my fellowship, and I said, okay, if I stay in cardiology, I'm going to do another at least a couple years of subspecialty. Why don't I just do OBGYN? That way I will be doing cardiology and I'll be doing OBGYN. And that is how I got into OBGYN at USC at the time. And uh, I took my cardiology boards when I was a second year OBGYN resident taking OB call. At that time, I didn't realize that I will need to do an MFM to truly do what I want to do. And I think probably that was the lowest point in my career. I am grateful to my mentors at that time who encouraged me to really follow my dream and not to focus on the number of years, two or three years here and there, and the big picture is not gonna make a difference. So here I am, uh, after doing two residencies and two fellowships, I would not have done any differently. I have enjoyed every step of the way, and I'm so happy to see that cardio obstetrics in itself is taking, taking shape. Why do you think it's important for obstetricians and those who, of us who provide care for women to do uh, fellowships and other specialties other than just the routine um, maternal fetal medicine and, and kind of stay in the in that OB focused world? Um, I truly admire you, Dr. Graves, and several others who actually have done critical care fellowships after their MFMs or vice versa. I think it's really important as we um, get to know the pregnancy changes and the needs and the presentation of pregnant patients, I feel that even though we have a three-year MFM fellowship that focuses both on the maternal and fetal aspects, for somebody who really wants to take of care of critically ill patients who are pregnant or postpartum, uh, you really need to have additional training and exposure. You know, I see a lot of fellows in MFM who would do a month or two of, of ICU training, but it's very different when you actually do the fellowship and be there and taking care of all sorts of cardiac patients or critically ill patients, it improves your ability to diagnose, treat, and uh, and to anticipate problems. No, I totally agree. I, I, in fact, just the other day, I told one of my um, nursing colleagues who said, is this an obstetrical problem? I said, every problem in a pregnant woman is an obstetrical problem because of the physiologic changes and things. And so it's so important for people to understand a deeper knowledge of these things that the combination uh, can be very helpful too. You recently joined our TIPQC annual meeting and discussed cardiovascular disease and pregnancy. And you mentioned your personal goal is to have every pregnant person screen cardiac issues. Tell us a little bit more about the screening tool that you've implemented and why is this so important? Absolutely. First, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to attend TIPQC. And I'm truly impressed by the work that is being done in your state, the way you are leading it, and the dedication of the team members that I, that I saw. And likewise, I've been part of the California Maternal Mortality Review Committee for more than 15 years now. And we have um, seen a common theme when it comes to cardiac patients. And that is the patient doesn't know equally, the providers don't know when the patient presents with shortness of breath to the emergency department or to their OB provider 
or a non-OB provider. The common theme again is a lack of suspicion of cardiovascular disease with delayed or no diagnosis of a heart problem until after the woman has died. We as healthcare providers don't think of cardiac disease in a young patient and the patient doesn't know either. And there is that disconnect a lot of times when a postpartum patient presents to the emergency department a week later after her delivery with extreme fatigue and swelling or shortness of breath, it usually is taken as being postpartum and not having enough sleep. A lot of times there's an uh, there's a alternate diagnosis because nobody wants to think about cardiac. It, it may be the new onset asthma or a pneumonia when these patients get treated. And eventually, one or two or three times, these patients represent with the same symptoms to um, succumb to cardiac disease. So uh, we are working with this huge gap in both provider and patients, and how to bridge it such that we are able to anticipate and diagnose a problem before the problem happens. Based on our reviews, maternal mortality reviews, they were common. Um, symptoms. There were common vital sign abnormalities. We put together an algorithm, and that algorithm is in the form of four buckets. One bucket is self-reported symptoms by the patient. The second bucket is a vital sign abnormalities, tachycardia or high blood pressure and things like that. And then underlying risk factors. The fourth bucket is an abnormal lung or heart exam. Once we implemented algorithm in the maternal deaths, we would have identified 93% of these mothers before they died. And there was a good to strong opportunity that we could have prevented uh, one or two out of four mothers who died. And that's a huge number. So the next step really naturally was to see how this algorithm or the tool works in usual routine obstetrical care, because that's where we find patients. And a lot of these patients don't have a um, underlying diagnosis when they present to prenatal care. So that is the work we have been doing. And we have partnered with a lot of other academic institutions, including yours at University of Tennessee. We have University of San Diego, New York. We have the St. Luke Hospital Systems, University of Missouri. So we have a lot of academic centers that have collaborated. We are working together as a team. We have implemented this tool into the electronic medical record system and working on to screen every single patient who goes through the system of for cardiovascular disease. And in this process, once it's implemented and part of the electronic medical record system, it takes less than a minute to know whether this patient is low risk or is at high risk for CBD. In the event, you see that a patient is at high risk for CBD, we do have recommendations to do further testing, which may be in the form of blood test or an echocardiogram or an EKG so that we can actually determine if they have cardiac disease. The work we have done so far, the preliminary data that we have, we have screen positive rates that vary from 5 to 25 to 30 percent, depending on 
the ethnicity and the underlying patient population in California is about 5%. And out of the ones who screen positive for cardiovascular disease, there is about 30 to 40% that have some form of cardiac issue. Uh, which could be in the form of underlying arrhythmia or valve disease or an undiagnosed uh, congenital heart disease. Just to mention, I had a patient recently last week, I had this young patient, 26-year-old, first pregnancy, came in for an, another diagnosis for uh, von Willebrand disease, and she had other issues. So I did her CVD risk assessment, and that came to be high risk. I sent her for an echocardiogram. She also had a murmur. And I got the report yesterday, she has an ASD. Now this atrial septal defect with a right-sided overload at the moment is not causing uh, problems to her. However, if we did not have this diagnosis and she would have gone undiagnosed for the next five, 10 years, this would have impacted her long-term. We are gonna diagnose some of those and it's gonna alter management. I think that the biggest barrier that we have right now, ability or the buy-in from all the providers, especially if you don't have a hard stop in EMR. Risk assessment rate in general at the institutions, they vary anywhere from about 55% to 95%. And primarily, if it's left to the provider, I know we are all very busy, we have less time and more patients, and less time and more complicated patients, uh, people don't pay attention to it. But I think um, with time and with a change in culture and continued education, we are gonna get to that 100%. And that's where my personal professional goal comes in. I would like to see every single pregnant patient at least have one CVD risk assessment during pregnancy. And I strongly believe that this may lead to a diagnosis, like we talked about, you know, a, an underlying diagnosis that patient didn't know, or it could be in the form of opportunity for that patient knowing that I have this risk assessment that is high, she would be more likely to seek medical care if she develops shortness of breath down the road a few months later, a year later, she's more likely to work on her underlying risk factors. So there are these potential benefits. Some of them are tangible. Some of these are intangible. But in general, there needs to be a better awareness so we can bridge the gap that exists in patients, in young patients with undiagnosed cardiovascular disease. You know, one of the things I think that people don't understand is how cardiovascular disease is related to maternal morbidity and mortality. I know in the state of Tennessee is our leading cause of maternal morbidity and mortality throughout the state. And of course, Tennessee is not has not done as good as California with our maternal mortality uh, rate in prevention. We rank fourth in the United States among states with the, some of the highest maternal mortality. And one of the things that we know is that women, Black women in particular, are more likely to carry the burden of maternal mortality and morbidity. Is cardiovascular disease higher in women of color? And uh, can you speak kind of what you've done in California to increase that awareness. Absolutely. I think you made a, make a great point, Tony. The There is at least four times higher risk in Black people compared to white people. 
And that has to do with a variety of factors, that, but the most important ones are the underlying risk factors. Black people are more likely to be hypertensive. They are more likely to be overweight or obese, and they have limited access to medical care. And all of these together is what is driving those numbers. Now, in the state of California, we have about 5% population that is Black. And um, even in that scenario, the relative proportion in maternal mortality is way higher than that small fraction. So the, uh, the most important piece uh, really is the education, is understanding. And I know, and I say that because as we all know, type of cardiovascular disease in young people is congenital heart disease. And we have a lot of childbearing patients, uh, women who have underlying cardiovascular, who have congenital disease, who have had their cardiac um, anomalies repaired. They are getting follow-up. And if you look at the relative proportion of those, those patients with severe morbidity and mortality, it's very low. And that is because we know that they have cardiovascular disease. We are able to treat them. The biggest issue here in pregnancy has to do with, with not knowing. And there are two aspects to it. One, pregnancy itself is a hemodynamic stress. As you know, the heart is beating faster, harder, cardiac output is high, blood volume is high. So you're more likely to have symptoms that are very similar to cardiovascular disease. A normal pregnant patient, a low risk at 34 weeks, uh, we all know, we have all seen them having shortness of breath and lower extremity edema. So a lot of these symptoms, they mimic cardiovascular disease and pregnancy is that state. So it makes it difficult to differentiate whether this is due to pregnancy or is it underlying cardiovascular disease? And that is where the cardiovascular risk assessment comes in. That's where that algorithm, it helps you stratify. If you're not sure, you could do that. And then the other piece is the de novo, a new onset of cardiovascular disease in an otherwise relatively healthy heart, a patient, is the peripartum cardiomyopathy, which is specific to pregnancy. It happens in the last month of pregnancy or within the first few months after delivery, random heart failure. We don't know 100% where it comes from, there's a lot of associations. There's a lot of underlying factors that can feed into it. But the bottom line being, this could be a low-risk patient who was delivered, went home, and then a week later, she's short of breath. This could be peripartum cardiomyopathy. And actually, this is a big group of patients who are not able to get the care, whether they because it, whether it's because of their own lack of understanding the lack of suspicion by the healthcare providers when they are presenting with shortness of breath in the postpartum period. So the bottom line, the most important thing in cardiovascular is knowing if you have a problem. Patient knows that they were at high risk for CVD during their pregnancy. They did well in pregnancy, but a year later, if they have chest pain, they probably are going to pay more attention. They are going to go to the ED. They may be able to tell their provider. So, so again, I think it goes back to the importance of 
education and awareness. And uh, that's where we are. We are at this point. Our goal is to get it adopted by the Medicaid so that all patients under Medicaid in California are screened. And we still have some more work to do, but we are on that goal. That is, that is what we are working towards. Well, I think what people really need to understand that this is real-time things. About a month ago, I had six women in the hospital. All of them had cardiomyopathy. Four of them, five of them were diagnosed with the cardiovascular screening tool. Uh, one of them came from an outlying hospital in the ICU. Five out of the six of the patients were black and uh, two or three of them left are qualified for having a something, a defibrillator or something to keep them from having abnormal heart rhythms on at the time of discharge. And so this is not, I think when people talk about screening, well, how many people do I have to screen to make a difference? And in a high risk population, it's not that many people. And one of these patients would not have gotten her echo if, if she had not screened positive on the screening tool because the cardiologist was not that impressed with her changes in rhythm and she'd had COVID pneumonia pre recently. And so the people thought her shortness of breath was still due to that. So these are a real time issue for, for women and, and they're safe. And I will um, chairs and aside, we have a hard stop. And as everyone knows in quality improvement, it's continuous. And so someone really didn't do it well. And the patient coded in the OR. So it got the attention of all of us. And now we've been doing routine edits to see if people are just kind of random reviews to see if people are screening appropriately, which hope will improve our ability to detect and not have someone have um, an event. Uh, fortunately for the patient, she recovered, but it could have been a different story. Absolutely. Wow. That is very impressive. And again, I, it goes back, Ani, to the underlying risk factors and the population you're working with. I think it's more pronounced at your, in your area. And same goes with, with the state of uh, Georgia. I was on a, on a call last week, um, and they are also looking to implement the toolkit. And they are, the, the biggest barrier is how to access the remote areas and how to get those patients, the echocardiograms they may need or the follow-up. So we were um, looking at some creative ideas. We, we were also looking at a potential of research down the road where you could um, have a mobile van with, you know, portable echo machine and an echo tech and a couple of a point of care blood tests to go to different areas and then do telemedicine so that we can actually connect those disadvantaged remote population to to a better healthcare, you know, and translating into better outcomes down the road. That sounds like great. One of the, the advantages I think we have in the, especially in the Middle Tennessee area is one of our radiology practices also does echoes. And so they have a very far reach out into many of our more rural areas. And so even if that you can, even if you not, don't get like you don't get the best imaging, some imaging is better than no imaging. 
And then if we feel like the patient needs further imaging, we can bring that patient in. But getting care to patients and getting the follow-up is really important. What can we do as a state to make a difference? We're already doing the cardiovascular screening tool, and, and we've done some education with increasing patients' awareness of adverse pregnancy outcomes future risk of heart disease. And, but what can we do as a state to further improve or to make a difference in cardiovascular disease? Yeah, one of the challenges, Connie, with cardiovascular disease is the predominance of cardiomyopathy in the postpartum period. And a lot of these patients uh, present towards the end of their maternity care to the OB providers, and they may be presenting to their primary care, or they may be presenting to the emergency department. So I think getting colleagues from emergency, from primary care, cardiology on board is very important uh, because again, as you know, none of these initiatives work unless we have a comprehensive team and there's a buy-in. And there is real passion and interest in advancing what we are trying to do. So I, I think the biggest piece is going to be, again, access to care, addressing barriers to follow up, and getting our ED folks on board. Uh, do you have any other thoughts today for the audience? Um, I think my biggest message for the audience is keeping cardiovascular disease in mind and make sure that you are heard. I think one of the biggest common themes that I see is patients know there's something wrong. They are reassured by the provider, but the reassurance is not reassuring them. Uh, So my message is not to stop there. Ask for help, get a second opinion, make sure that you are heard. And, and same goes for the providers. I Anytime a patient comes in uh, with a complaint, please make sure that we have a reason, we have a diagnosis. And if there's no diagnosis, uh, follow up and educate the patient so that they come back. You know, my advice for providers is if you think about it, you probably should be ordering it. So somebody will come to me and say, you know, She's presented a couple of times. She says she's a little short of breath. Do you think I should do, work up, do, get an echo? The answer is absolutely yes. If you think about it, you probably should be doing it. And, and echoes are ultrasounds. And so, you know, as obstetrical providers, we don't think twice about getting an ultrasound. Uh, and we need to have that same mentality, but I think when it comes to uh, cardiovascular disease as well. Especially in the remote areas after hours, just like you, Dr. Graves, as critical care doc, you you look at the IVCs, you look at the LV function. The probes are different, but I, having used the probe for cardiac basic cardiac function myself in the office, uh, you can get decent pictures. You can use a probe to actually get a bit of the cardiac function from, and that would help determine if this, you know, a relatively reasonable confidence that this is not severe cardiomyopathy. Absolutely. I've been teaching the residents to look at the heart, the the lungs. You can look for pulmonary edema because we we ultrasound, obstetricians ultrasound all the time. And in my mind, it's just an extension of a skill set that we already have. Absolutely. I think there's more work that needs to be done in that area. 
Absolutely. Well, again, I just want to thank you for your time today. I'm hoping that we have covered a lot of things for the people who will be listening to this podcast. Uh, again, uh, this is Dr. Hasham Hamid, and we've been talking about cardiovascular disease, which is the leading killer of women in all stages of life, including pregnancy. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Hamid. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.